Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and uh, good morning to you. It is Monday, May 3rd. Wow, it's May. Don't, oh, see, I could start singing now. I will not. I will not. What song is it I could be singing? Hmm? I spared you all through April, April, when April showers come your way, they bring the flowers in May. But when I just said it's May, those are the first lines to another musical theater song, right? Camelot. I said, right. Did you hear that? This is my new thing. I have to stop saying right after everything I say. It's annoying. It's May. It's May. The lusty month of May. That glorious month where everyone goes <laughs> astray. <laughs> it's time to do a wicked thing or two. I can't remember them. Oh, God, the thing's cluttering up one's brain. Anyway, good to be home. It, uh, it is good to be home. Um, well, some of the things I, I learned while I was uh, away in the more western regions of the country. Um, this is a big, big country. <laughs> you know, it really is. It is amazingly big. And um, who knew? I found out just driving, driving from here to Green Bay, Wisconsin, that when you're in Indiana, uh, all of a sudden, everything you see is RV, RV sales, RV. I think there was an RV museum I passed. Uh, so I, it, my impression of Indiana is they really like recreational vehicles, including having a museum to them, apparently. Personally, I would not go out of my way to go to the RV museum. And speaking of that, doing a crossword puzzle the other day, I saw that there is a tort, a legal, you know, torts, legal things, a tort museum. What the hell? And it was a clue in the puzzle. And it was, I think the clue was founder of the tort museum. It's not quite the exact. And and it was five letters, and you know what? I didn't have any of the cross letters, but I who would have a tort museum? I think it was in Florida or something. And I thought Ralph Nader, gotta be, founded the tort museum. You can check me on any of this because I, I'm, I'm not sure. These are all things I'm vaguely remembering. Who knew that Western South Southwestern Michigan was like winery country? Uh, driving through Southwestern Michigan on my way back to Pittsburgh, I tour up to Ann Arbor to see my brother and sister-in-law, and all of a sudden, all I saw were uh, wineries, one one after another. That doesn't seem like Western Michigan would be a good winery. I don't understand any of it. Anyway, 
And look what happened when the minute I left Green Bay. I should have stayed. I don't know, might be coincidence, but the minute I left, Aaron Rodgers said he wanted to leave too. I'm just saying. And that was startling. And uh, for the city of Green Bay, it's uh, it's heartbreaking. Um, and then Green Bay got in the news for uh, you know a mass shooting. Wonderful. You haven't arrived until you've had a mass shooting in your in your town. Uh, the casino where this shooting was is directly across from the uh, Green Bay Airport. Uh, which is airports go, oh God, my landline, which is uh, airports go is very, very small. And being Green Bay, the casino is also owned by the the Native Americans there, the Oneida, the Oneida nation. And um, it isn't, I've never been in it. (laughs) <laughs> it's been there for some time. I've never been in it because I don't I don't like to gamble. I don't I think life's enough of a gamble. I don't I don't like the the anything about a casino. I don't like the sound of it. I don't like what used to be the smoke <laughs> of it. <clears throat> I don't like the hacking and <laughs> I don't like the I don't know the whole thing really just I must be very sort of there's something puritanical in me that just finds it appalling. <laughs> I do never bought a lottery ticket. So anyway, I never stepped foot in that casino. And the adjoining hotel, because a lot of people obviously must must go there. And it's great for the Oneida Nation. But anyway, this whole place was a crime scene. And all the planes that landed there, can you imagine you land finally in your destination of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And then you find that there is a huge, huge crime scene, uh, working crime scene directly across from you. And the roads have all been closed down. So you can't get out of the airport. And that is what happened. And so people with their luggage in tow started, I mean, it's a bit of a long walk. I mean, they Smiles. They've walked to the road on the other side of which was the crime scene. And I guess the police allowed them with their luggage to like skirt the and and to walk again up this long, 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 long road till they got to the first intersection that wasn't blocked off, which was a shell station. And so weary, weary travelers. Can you imagine? Travel is such a to have it end, like, you know, schlepping through uh, through cow fields um, because, well, not surprisingly, there was, there was a, ma- oh, I see, we, there's a mass murder there. Oh, mm-hmm. welcome to America. 
geez. Yeah, having a little trouble getting getting back. I still haven't tackled all the mail that is piled up. And of course, I threw out up most of it, which is stuff you don't want, so that the pile that's remaining is also stuff I don't want, but contains bills and things like that. So that's that's my job for today. Okay, enough. Now, what are we going to talk about? I uh, really tried very hard to not pay a lot of attention to the news. And you do have to admit that since uh, Joe Biden became president of these uh, here United States, these here disunited states, um, it's just gotten quieter, you know, the, everything, the news in general. There's not that, um, oh God, that sort of roiling, constant anxiety attached to it. Although when you do dip into it, it is, you know, pretty much the same, same stuff you don't want to think about. So let's not for just a while. Okay. And, and let me like throw some things out here that are, you know, not what you were thinking I was possibly going to be talking about. Um, Alexander Graham Bell, <laughs> right? See, there was a right. Somebody start counting them for me. I catch most of them, but it's uh, it is definitely a verbal tick that I'm not aware of. Oh, dang it! Anyway, back to Mr. Bell. Uh, he's not what you thought. I, 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 the information I'm getting, I'm getting from having read a review of a book about him. Uh, but the book. Focuses on his life's passion, which was not telephones. <laughs> he didn't give a damn really about the telephone. He did give a damn about securing the patent. So, um, as a business uh, deal, but the telephone, uh, you know, it made him obviously rich and famous. He was not in any way, you know, he didn't talk about it. He wasn't emotionally attached to it. Uh, in fact, he saw it as a distraction from his real work. And his real work, I think I sort of kind of had heard this once before. His real work was teaching the deaf how to speak. Which is today considered the most wrong-headed approach to deafness that one could promote. It was called oral oralism, and he was the major proponent of it. And it, 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 it was an effort to teach someone who couldn't hear to speak to have a voice and to and to speak and it can be done i give you helen keller who by the way was a friend of his but it it is so difficult that to learn how to do it 
means that you're not learning anything else. And a lot of people can never master it. <clears throat> and um, according to the book, only about 10% of deaf people who received a kind of education that Alexander Graham Bell thought they should have ended up functioning comfortably in the hearing world. It didn't work. But he was a stubborn Scotsman. And even more interesting, he was the son and grandson. He was following in his family's footsteps. His grandfather and his father were, listen to this, because it's not a profession you hear anybody say anymore. They were elocutionists. They were elocutionists. <laughs> they were totally totally into, I mean, passionate about understanding <clears throat> speech and how human beings create speech and making sure, you know, I think of elocutionists, I think of somebody who hectors you about how you're pronouncing a word, but it can get a whole lot deeper than that. And strangely, his grandfather, the elocutionist, so this is going back into the 1700s, because Bell was born in 1840-something. So his grandfather was the elocutionist. Then his father was and married a deaf woman. Imagine your passion being the spoken word and then marrying someone who couldn't hear it. It's odd. And then Alexander Graham Bell also followed in those same footsteps and he married a deaf woman. His mother had been deaf. He married a deaf woman. And that was the passion. And the phone only came as a result of him fooling around with other creations that would assist in him helping the deaf to speak. So just saying, it's really... <clears throat> He was absolutely opposed to sign language, and, um, and he was wrong. Because another interesting thing in the book is that while we are living in an era in which things are going extinct every other second, animal species, uh, flora, fauna, perhaps ourselves, all of it, so are languages. And by the end of the century, it is assumed that half of the languages that are being spoken today will be gone, will have vanished, and will survive only because a few you know, passionate people 
will make a point of at least cataloging those now dead languages. One of the languages that is enjoying incredible health and is in zero danger of disappearing is the very thing that Alexander Graham Bell fought against, American Sign Language. So it's just a little, uh, blah, 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 little, a little piece of information that I found and, and just wanted to pass it on to you because it's, it's interesting. <laughs> and I, I also learned that he was not a warm man. He didn't have friends. People didn't like him. He was sort of singular in purpose. He was not emotional. Um, and it, in the book, the review of which I was reading, uh, he um, he was said to probably have been uh, on the autism scale, which it points out a whole heck of a lot of great inventors are. Isn't that interesting? And um, I'm sorry, I just got a, a beep. Why don't my friends know I'm on the air? <laughs> it is, it's odd. Anyway. Oh, what? Oh, Bob, thank you for this. I'm sorry, somebody just sent me Lauren Mann has died. Oh, man, I didn't... I, I did not know. Let's see, sent me the obituary. When I came to Pittsburgh in uh, January of 1981, Lauren Mann was a uh, fellow television reporter. And uh, that is how I, I knew him. He died... Um, as being remembered mostly as a uh, a minister and a founder of the Pentecostal Temple Church of God in Christ, which I believe is right over close to me, over here in East Liberty. Um, wow. Um, I just want to... We want to see what 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 it says he hold uh he attended pitt he was 21 years as a news reporter from for wpxi but always his true passion was the church yeah i remember when i you know heard that he left tv and gone into you know in some respects both are you know about being in front of people right and uh, and informing and or speaking and or whatever it it does it does make sense. Um, so he was uh, chairman of Jubilee Broadcasting Corporation. 
among 30 candidates vetted and among 11 later appointed to the prestigious national board for the Church of God in Christ. And uh, he was a bishop. To know him was to love him, said the um, presiding bishop of that, of the Church of God in Christ. Well, I'm sorry to hear it. Um, survived by two children, um, one an attorney in Washington, D.C., and Lauren Jr., a minister <laughs> and a musician. Well, th- thank you for sending that to me, Bob. It's, uh, yeah. Hey, I do have another, as long as you got me onto obituaries, if you don't mind. I'll, um, I also found one, and it does also have a Pittsburgh connection, although I didn't see it in Pittsburgh. I saw it in the New York Times. And uh, and I didn't know the name, and I know abs- the whole thing was news to me. And I like to think that I I like to think that I remember the fifties because I was alive. And this is about a woman who was a singing sensation in the fifties, and she's from right around here. And she died last month here in Pittsburgh at the age of 81. She had a fascinating life. I'll read the first sentence of the New York Times obituary. Jill Corey, a torch singer who soared to fame as a teenage television star in the early 50s at one point becoming one of Columbia Records' top vocalists, has died at a hospital in Pittsburgh. She was 85. Um, I never heard of her. I thought I knew all those torch singers. And then it turns out that she was uh, a a daughter of of a coal miner, Um, and she later, by the way, the coal mine was somewhere in Kiskey Township, and that's where her dad worked, um, and died very, I think, young. But she made all her money young. She was in her teens when she got discovered by Mitch Miller, now him, I remember, and she ended up buying her dad the mine he worked in. And she renamed it the Corey Mine. Oh, no, I got this wrong. It was her mom who died uh, when she was four. So she was brought up by her by her coal miner father as a single parent and she bought him the mine so what happened is uh she managed to send the tape to mitch miller in her teens she was 17 she was still in high school and mitch miller the band leader and the guy who like really sort of was a uh, a scout for columbia records he immediately 
sent her a plane ticket and told her, get here. I need to see you and hear you in person. She came, and by the end of that day, Norma Jean Speranza, that was her name, Norma Jean Speranza, had a record deal, the attention of Life magazine, which put her on the cover next to a headline that said, small town girl gets new name and a new career. And there she is. They put her on the cover. The other headline is The Inside Story of Yalta by Winston Churchill. <laughs> but Norma Jean Speranza was the cover. And they changed her name to Jill Corey. Eddie Fisher went after her. Frank Sinatra, after his breakup with Ava Gardner, went after her. But one guy from Pittsburgh was also going after her, and he wouldn't stop. Even when she got engaged. She got engaged to some fancy-dancy diplomat from Brazil. And this Pittsburgh guy would not stop. He went to every one of her live performances. He once somehow got her band to let him sit in as a trumpet player. He once walked on stage while she was singing with a magnum of champagne and two glasses. And finally, Jill Corey said, all right, all right, all right. I'll marry you. His name was Hoke. H-O-A-K. And he was the third baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates which I didn't have to say for an awful lot of you. And so Jill Corey became Mrs. Hoke and she married him in 1961 and gave up her career. And what I didn't know about this is it says right here, their daughter Claire was born in 65 and Hoke died of a heart attack at the wheel of his car in 1969 while chasing his brother-in-law's stolen automobile. Now, somebody help me here. I always thought it was Dick Hoke. The obit says Don Hoke. Who's right, me or the New York Times? I'm, I'm, I would not put money on me, but I swear I thought it was Dick Hoke. She stayed here. She tried to come back at one point, but nah, it just didn't go. So she was one of those people who was just this huge star and then by the time she's like in her late 20s, she's done. 
a few years ago, this is how the obituary ends. A few years ago, Mrs. Hoke fell in her home and called 911. And when the fire department uh, paramedics arrived, she received them with a scotch in one hand and a cigarette in the other. The firefighters balked at the cigarette. But Mrs. Hoke, no, her daughter recalled, mom told them, oh, come on. You boys know how to put out a fire, don't you? So quite a character. Jill Corey, born Norma Jean Speranza, died here in Pittsburgh. Her daughter, Claire Hoke, said the cause was septic shock. So that's, geez, I just, don't you love finding out new stuff? There's so much stuff. Jonathan writes, George Carlin once said, we were lucky that Alexander Graham Bell's name wasn't Alexander Graham Siren. <laughs> you know, I also spent some time in the last few weeks reading about Andrew Carnegie. And, and my God, these, he too be about the same, I think he'd be a little older, yes, than, than uh, Bell, but both these born in Scotland, and to come here to this country, this is why immigration is such a good idea. And um, look what they did. Chuck writes, wineries, all those wineries you saw on your trip are not hurting all that much. We're going from 14 months of doom drinking to likely another 14 months of celebratory drinking. All those canceled events have been rescheduled. Well, that's true. I just always thought of wine country as a warmer climate than is offered by Michigan, um, you know, but I must be wrong. And regarding casinos, Chuck says, I'm right there with you regarding casinos and I'm getting tired of all those gambling ads. Oh, yes. Ah, Dick Hoke played for the Steelers. That's where I got wrong. Okay, I got mixed up. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> I told you, bet on the New York Times, not me. Um, yeah, those those ads are horrible, and I've 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 stilled them on my phone because they're popping up on my phone all the time, and I just you know blocked all of them. But you can't block them on TV. And in regard to what I said about news being quieter, Chuck says, yeah, it has a quieter tone because the former president isn't tweeting stupid and ugly statements every hour. And let's hope that continues. Okay, yeah, Dick Hoke got thing got got my got my games mixed up there. So Don Hoke was the um was the pirate and Dick Hoke was the stealer. Were they related? There's my next question. I don't know. I don't know. All righty. Now, 
let's see. Yesterday, I think, I saw this headline, and it just made me go ballistic. It's, I don't even like to talk about it, but I, I do need to do a quick rant about this. The headline is, McConnell attacks anti-racism education as divisive nonsense. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Man, these Republicans. Man. Here's what he said. Uh, families did not ask for this divisive nonsense. Say divisive, but I think you're wrong on that one. Did not ask for this divisive nonsense. Voters did not vote for it. Americans never decided our children should be taught that our country is inherently evil. But what I want to know is where <laughs> the opposite then is to be taught what? If they look at slavery and they see inherent evil, which, yes, you would, and we were a slave nation, this nation largely built on the backs of slave labor, certainly the entire South and its economy, and then all those people who died trying to protect this inherent evil, And what is it as Americans that we want our children to be taught? I don't know about you, but I go for the truth. Republicans don't agree. And here's what I think. Republicans think we wouldn't love this country if we knew the truth of this country. But here's the deal. I think I'm pretty up to date, got a lot more to learn, God knows, about the truth of America. And I still love it. I want to fight for it. It is my country. And there are wondrous things about this country. And we've done some wonderful things and we've overcome some of the worst aspects of ourselves. And we've constantly push things forward, forward, always with Republicans and Mitch McConnell desperately trying to keep us from doing that. They just want to teach a mythology. And that's what I was taught. The myth of America, that's what most of us were taught, right? It was bull. Oh, there was some truth in it here and there, but, but by omission, what we weren't taught was astonishing. We were taught what the powers that be thought we should be taught to make us proud Americans. 
And that meant losing a whole bunch of pretty pertinent <laughs> history. Uh, it's amazing to me. How, do, how does a person or a country, how do a people, how does an individual, how does a nation better itself if it can't acknowledge its reality, <laughs> where it came from, and given that, what it needs to change to put it on a better path. That is how progress and growth occur. And so the idea of being a conservative, it means it's a, it, it, it's a, an opposition to change. And I guess along with that opposition to change is an opposition to anything that would suggest that there's any need to change. So the Republicans see learning about our history and our the inherent evil of what we did to the indigenous people, to the black people, to a lot of other people, they see that as nonsense. <laughs> nonsense, that's the word, nonsense. And this, as they now frantically, in state after state after state, rush to pass one after another noxious piece of legislation intended to keep black people from voting. Putting up blockades and, and tripwires and all kinds of things, taking away any aids that might have helped them cast a vote. Yeah, sure. So for them, it's nonsense because it's the truth is dangerous to the Republicans, especially dangerous to a Republican Party that has clearly decided to be in the thrall of the most extraordinary pathological liar I have ever personally witnessed. And that, of course, is he who, whose name need not be said. And speaking of uh, that, I just want to say, um, while Republicans are now busily at work, of course, not doing anything to make the country better, they're doing what they do, which is keeping themselves in power. And if you do that by taking votes away from people, then that's the way they've made the calculation. That's the only way they can win. 
That's their calculation. They could, in fact, decide to change, <laughs> to, to reach out and bring people in. But that's just not their, that's not their skill set. It's not where their heads go. And so we Democrats who have this notion that we are the, we're the party that most Americans prefer. And I mean, the numbers show that. But we are the party, one of the things that is going to grow our party, that demographic shift that will destroy the Republicans, finally, that shift because of all the brown people coming in. Hmm? I just want to point out that we're making a lot of assumptions there that are probably not true. If the Republican Party weren't so racist, they would be the party that South American and Central American immigrants would join. For many reasons. All those desperate people trying to get across our southern border come from a very conservative culture. And they come from a Catholic culture. Value family. Let me tell you something. By all rights, they should gravitate to the party that says they're the family party. They're not, but says they are. They're the family party of Ozzie and Harriet. But the family party, the anti-abortion party, right? The party that gets queasy with gays and everything else, right? I'm saying right a lot, I hear it. And I always thought, why are we saying, why do we think this Hispanic vote is ours? Because it isn't. You do see that in Florida, and guess where you're starting to see it as well? In Texas. We're always thinking, well, this might be the year, the Texas, because it's getting browner and browner and browner. Texas is going to go Democrat. Well, no, it's not. And in fact, the Hispanic population there is moving in the other direction. So I'll share this with you. It is from today's New York Times. But if you look down at the border, the Rio Grande Valley, okay? And you look at where the growth is, like where people are moving, if they're moving from party to party. They're moving from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. This last election, Trump received nearly double the number of votes he had four years earlier. In other words, people who voted for Hillary Clinton 
in 2016 voted for Donald Trump four years later. And this is a piece that talks to some of those people. And driving it, they say, I don't know, the women, Hispanic women. And a lot of it has to do with their opposition to abortion. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that many of their family members are in law enforcement. Law enforcement is one of the easier paths to the middle class. And they also don't agree with Democrats on guns. And when Democrats really start heading off the reservation, as we do, on other social issues, they really don't see it. So this is a conservative demographic. And it's only been a democratic voting block of sorts because of the inherent racism of the Republicans. And a few other reasons, I'm sure. I'll leave you. It's it's frightening. I mean, they're no different than any other uh, anybody else, right? Here's a 40-year-old, Elisa Rivera, said she voted for Hillary in 2016, but never understood the fierce reaction against Donald Trump. Here's her quote. I was following along with the family tradition. My dad is a hardcore Democrat. My father was really for unions. And I thought the Democrats defended the union. But then I started to research myself. Here we go. And found out Democrats are supporting witchcraft. <laughs> um, somebody needs to tell Elisa Rivera that uh, when she went to school, she obviously did not learn how to properly research. So she started to research and she found the Democrats are supporting witchcraft and child trafficking and things like that that get censored because they get labeled conspiracy theories. So there you have it. The poison. The poison. Just keeps drip, drip, dripping into the body politic. God almighty. Another story I want to share with you. This was from the Washington Post. And it blew my mind. And it has to do with a very, I think, courageous and uh, radio station in Harrisburg, capital of this commonwealth, WITF. It's an all-news public radio station, okay? So it's like, you know, our public radio station here. We got a few, but like the news one. And they decided that after 
so many people they cover regularly because they're in Harrisburg. So, so many of the Republican legislators and congressmen who, who spread the big lie that Pennsylvania's vote was somehow not correct, that it had been toyed with, and then who even after the January 6th insurrection, who hours after that bloody melee actually stood on the floor of the House and the Senate and voted to nullify Pennsylvania's votes. Pennsylvania congressmen did that. And so they, after a lot of thought, decided that they were not going to let that stand. They were not going to go back to covering these people as if they hadn't done this outrageous thing, promulgated the lie, and then even after the lie results in death, and the most horrific attack on our democracy since the Civil War, they still sided with the insurrectionists, touting the big lie. Now, if you look at the networks and everybody else, they've moved on so that they still book these people Kevin McCarthy, Ted Cruz, Ron Johnson, Marco Rubio, all these people. <clears throat> they get booked and there they are doing what they always did before they tried to undo the results of the election, before they spread these lies about fraud that didn't happen, before the violent assault on the Capitol. They've just gone back to normal. It's pointed out in the article, for instance, I mean, CBS this morning uh, alerted everyone to this wonderful exclusive interview they had with a, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who was one of the seven who voted against certifying the election results from Pennsylvania. My vote, your vote. And not once in the interview was it mentioned that Scott had literally tried to overturn the presidential election. This little radio station in Harrisburg thinks that the proper role, their proper role as journalists and truth tellers is to not forget And so they remind their audience. Every time they quote one of these people, every time they remind their audience. 
that these people were part of an unprecedented assault on American democracy. And this little station, WITF, who I think I'm going to send some money to, has stuck to its pledge in its day-to-day coverage ever since. And all they do, they don't draw attention to it. They simply, without fanfare, always include language about how lawmakers conducted themselves during the attempt to overturn the election. Whenever that person is mentioned in the course of regular news coverage. For example, here, a recent story about one of the state Republicans, legislators, um, said this. State Senator Ryan Oment, Republican Lancaster, was one of 17 Republican state senators who signed a January 4th letter that asked Congress to delay electoral coverage. They just keep putting it in. And they say it said incorrectly, Uh, something else, and then they say on January 11th, this election fraud lie, no, January 6th, this election fraud lie led to the attack on the Capitol. So this guy, State Senator Almond, and a whole bunch of others don't get mentioned in their on-air stories without that kind of reminder that they attempted to subvert our democracy. The head of the station, I mean, this takes some, this takes some balls. Guy named Scott Blanchard. No, this is, oh, he helped join the planning. He said, we struggled with this because it's not the normal thing. We had to ask ourselves, Does this mean we are not independent journalists? But we felt ultimately that sustained accountability was necessary. Um, Nobody's doing what they're doing. And so this article talked to a lot of people, you know, write about American media. And here's some of what they say. You know, there's a tendency in the political media to get caught up in the story of the day and not dwell on the things that need to be reckoned with. That's right. They move on. And they've all done it. CNN, MSNBC, all of them, ABC, Washington Post, New York Times. Maybe on occasion, parenthetically mentioned something, but no, they've moved on. And these people, these these insurrectionist uh, abettors are being treated as if none of that had happened. And this little station is saying, no, we're not going to move on. This was extraordinary. It was not normal. And we're not going back back to normal. I wish, I wish our station here had the balls to do this. 
I wish a whole bunch of others did. And you can bet they've had to take flack for it, but good for them. Oh, no, David, that's too stupid to even share. I'll share it. I'll admit, David says uh, it's a stupid joke. And it is. Question. Who was Alexander Graham Belsky? Answer. The first telephone pole. That's really lousy. It's so bad. I'm sorry. I am sorry. Um, Ed says, speaking of carrying on as usual, did you see this? Uh, the QAnon supporting attorney, Lynn Wood, has posted a bizarre social media story claiming that he saw Donald Trump hanging out and working in the Oval Office this week, suggesting that President Biden is dead. <laughs> oh, God! There is nothing. And oh, by the way, I also saw that Mike Flynn, who should be in jail, of course, Mike Flynn, uh, pardoned by the president, was at a Lynn Wood uh, supporting event and led the crowd in the Pledge of Allegiance and apparently didn't know it. Yes. Stumbled around. I didn't see the tape of him stumbling around, but he forgot it. Uh... Wow, I don't even want, you know, it's just unbelievable. These people are unbelievable. I guess it's just a game to them. You you know, I, as I said earlier, I love this country. It's why I want to fight for it. I won't cede it to these people who don't love it. They obviously don't love it. It's just some friggin' game they're playing. And it has to do with controlling it. Allison has sent a quote from Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, God. Here we go. If we are to have another contest in the near future, I predict that it will not be the Mason-Dixon line, but between patriotism and intelligence on one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. Wow. Wow. Alexander, I mean, Ulysses. Ulysses, right on the money. He saw it even then. So right after the Civil War, he sees it happening again. Right. And here we are. Patriotism and intelligence against superstition, ambition, and ignorance. 
There you go. Okay, awful lot to talk about that I didn't even get to, but but um, that's the way it is. Um, we'll give it a shot tomorrow, uh, and when I think Susan will be joining me. Okay, uh, great having you there, and I will be back tomorrow. Have a good one. Stay dry. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.